Harvey, tell me a little about yourself. Hi, I'm Harvey Smith. We're in Austin, Texas. It's Sunday. What's your favorite color? Oh, favorite color. God, that's hard. Probably blue. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Steve Gaynor, and you're listening to Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. And my guest today is Harvey Smith of Arcane. How's it going, Harvey? Good, Steve. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to Austin. Well, thank you so much. I like it a lot in Austin. Um, Yeah, I'm visiting Austin for Fantastic Arcade and just kind of taking the excuse to pass through and... I'm really excited that we're finally going to get a chance to talk about all the, I don't know, designy, <laughs> game devy stuff that I think a lot of times people on, in our industry don't really actually get to talk about if you don't work together or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and if you do work together, you talk about nonstop. Right, um, exactly. And I've, I, I just moved back to Austin in February, and before that, I lived in Lyon, France for four years, and so it was hard to talk to anybody, really, except... Uh, French friends and French developers and occasional trips to E3 or something like that, but it's right. like, it's good to be back in the U.S. Yeah. Well, and you've had a you've had a, a pretty wild journey as far as places you've lived and stuff that you've worked on. I mean, I imagine that you know you would have been uh, had your mind blown to know you would be living in Lyon, France, at some point in your life. <laughs> Probably didn't see that one coming earlier. Yeah, on. that's a, that's a. I never thought about that way, but it's like. When I got out of the Air Force in like 1993 and like struggled to get on at Origin where a friend worked and a couple of friends worked actually and uh, they had published Ultima Underworld and I thought they were the people that made it, you know, so I was right. like kind of applying at the wrong company basically, <laughs> but still it was great, a great opportunity. Uh, but I was like, I've said before, I was attempt making $7 an hour. I was on a folding table in the back of the room. I didn't mm-hmm. have a computer. I had a 3DO and a clipboard. <laughs> and so if you had told me, yeah, you know, I, I would have been like, haha, that's funny. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, you know, for folks who don't know, uh, yeah, Harvey, uh, I mean, the, the, the biggest early credit in your career, I feel like, that you had that was most public was being lead designer of Deus Ex. Yeah, um, and you know, I think that really, in a way, established um, the the kind of stuff that you worked on going forward, right? Like, I mean, you established a huge part, and and the team, you know, that you worked with the the people at um, Ion Storm Austin established a huge part of what we call the immersive sim genre, and what kind of that subgenre of game design and game development has led to. Um, and I mean, I you know. That's been hugely influential to me. Uh, I have the number 0451 tattooed on my body. Uh, so uh, I'm really carrying, you know, the legacy of you and other looking glass developers and, and people in that uh, school with me. But um, no, it's, it's an honor to get to actually, you know, talk to you about all this stuff. So um, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, and to that subject, like, it's, it's funny. Um, I've, I've always considered getting a... I have, I guess five tattoos, but one is a cover-up, so four Mm. are visible, but um, I've always considered, there's a couple of video game tattoos that I've considered getting. I almost got the Mark of the Outsider from Dishonored. (laughs) Uh, I almost got the the Deus Ex logo, and then there's the, you know, Rindle from the the Atari 2600 game uh, Adventure, the Little Red Dragon. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, I think, if I, unless I'm remembering incorrectly... I'm pretty sure it was possible for 
Rindle to come on the screen and eat you and you to be in his stomach, but the bat to fly by and grab Rindle and then fly through the level uh, and you would see the walls going past and you're, you're dead, yeah. you're in the dragon's stomach and right. the dragon's being carried around by the bat. Which is <laughs> The bat was a brilliant mechanic for just uh, rearranging elements in that procedural game. But it's like I wanted to get like Rindle with the little square player in the belly and the bat, you know, clearly having grabbed Rindle from the top of the head <laughs> and flying around. It's a super simple pixel, you know, right, tattoo. Yeah. I'm still probably going to get that one, but it's... Right, uh, good. Because it, like, sums up so much of what I love about games. Right. When a moment in game work, games work, you know, when it's, like, some sort of, like, um, when a moment in a game works, uh, where there's, like, a dynamic that happens as a, a result of the interaction of the player doing something and the system's responding to it, or or things closing in on the player and giving the player an out that they cleverly, you know, come up with at that moment. Yeah. That's... Uh, that's magic to me still. Yeah, and uh, it's like good emergent gameplay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and there's there's many other reasons to play games. Of course, the subject matter or uh, just the atmosphere, yeah. you know. But um, uh, the mood that it creates or whatever. But there's there's also that. And you play. I still, you know, I, I, I alternate all the time between uh, something like What Remains of Edith Finch. My favorite moment being the swing set moment. Just like yeah. the way it made me feel. I had to like put. Put the controller down and step back from the, the keyboard, you know. Yeah. So powerful. But then I also play... Uh, the new XCOM is just brilliant. Yeah. And so many things can happen in the course of a, a given mission or whatever. Right. So that stuff's so meaningful. And I, I, I've thought about getting that tattoo. <laughs> but yeah, the in terms of my time, it's like 23 years now or something like that. It's, yeah. uh There are a lot of moments where I was in some sort of support role, just like learning from the people around me as fast as I could. Um, and... Deus Ex was probably like the third time that I got thrust into some sort of like role where I was one of the leaders on the team and had to actually assert for for one direction or another. Uh, of course, working under Chris Norton and, and Warren Spector, and there were lots of other brilliant people on the team. And we were, in fact, you know, taking the best parts of the RPG and the best visceral freedom of movement parts of the shooter and trying to mix those two things together and Looking Glass had done that before yeah. so we were really riffing on subject matter that they had uh, covered as well um, so I just so yeah, I'm going to take a break uh, I just got two voicemails which makes me guess that the tow truck guy is here oh, so okay. I'm go check. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. how long did it take you to fully master this thing a uh, couple tries <laughs> um well, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I don't know, what was it like working at I Am Storm Austin and what, you know, you must have started on that project in like 98 or something like that. It came out in like 2000, right? Uh, Deus Ex 1. Yeah, I think it was 97. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, the same way if I asked you what was it like working on Gone Home, <laughs> you you know, you, you might fixate on some tech problem you solved or some design problem you solved um, or what was going on in your life at the time might have dominated that uh, that memory or like some conflict you had with somebody on the team or some really powerful connection you had with someone on the team and it's the same for me you know I think about where I was in my life at the time um, I was a different person I think about the people that I bonded very closely with and I'm still friends with, still work with yeah. today. Uh, 
I, I think about the people that I butted heads with and I wonder if I would still butt heads with them now. I, I think about all that I learned. I, I think I would say the most interesting thing about it for me is that in retrospect, memory is the kind of thing where you like know already how you feel about something and people know how they reacted to it and it's run its course. Um, but at the time, that's not true. At the time, there's huge arguments about whether this is going to be more like an Ultima with mm-hmm. lots of talky bits or it's going to be more like a shooter with lots of shooty bits or whether, you know, you know, dice rolling around lock picking is the fun part mm-hmm. or, you know, or whatever, right. right? What's the tone? Is it like, hey, the government's been hiding extraterrestrials or is it a more general statement on capitalism and uh, being an artificial um uh, an artificial way to like give some people a lot of resources and some in right. but paid for by some people having very few resources you know like you could say so many different things about Deus Ex because it was like such a broad game in a way and and I guess if you made it today it would just be like hey someone made a hybrid shooter RPG <laughs> with some political subtext in cyberpunk land that's cool right but at the time like given the games that were out and all I think it was pretty shocking you know and yeah. so a lot of that credit goes to Warren Spector and Sheldon Picotti and again Chris Norton was our brilliant uh, assistant director and mm-hmm. lead programmer and um, it was a, it was a really a group of people just all pulling in different directions and it was very contentious um, and it's hard it was hard to see at the time you know and now I have of course a narrative in my head about what happened and right. But it's uh yeah. I worked on a lot of levels. <laughs> well, I mean that's the uh, I mean there, there's so much that we could talk about about that project because I, I think that one I think that for at least in my awareness the aspect of Deus Ex that I think is most looked at looked back at and and talked about by designers now or you know through the lens of the influences had has is very. Um, mechanical and very like you know oh it's a immersive action RPG with stealth and you know like it it clearly was an influence on things like Bioshock and what you've done with Dishonored and and other things like this along with you know Thief and you know System Shock and so forth but you know I went back and replayed Deus Ex um, you know like maybe a couple of years ago and I. It's a very long game. I think I've gotten to the end of that game once or twice, but I've played halfway through it many times. Um, but just like, you know, even just playing through um, Liberty Island, uh, the, the first level of the game, in my most recent time that I, that I spent time with it, I was so struck by how very, very openly political it is and how directly... It was talking about class and economics and politics and power and authoritarianism. And again, this was in the year 2000 that it, that it came out. Like, it felt like, along with everything else that was like, yeah, is it a shooter? Is it a, you know, old underworld game, etc.? It was like, also, this game is actually talking about actual things through a sci-fi lens, you know, through a, through, through a video game kind of like, you are the player character lens, but the subject matter was like, look at how the underclasses are being exploited and bring you know, characters are just talking about real world 
things that actually happen in our own past that are examples of you know what you extrapolated into or you know what the Deus Ex team extrapolated into the the future world that you know the the events in the in the you know present tense of that game and I think that even now going back and playing the original Deus Ex and seeing just what the words on the screen were and what the issues that people were having long discussions about is still incredibly rare and I think really um, inspiring, interesting, surprising even now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how uh, sadly um, contemporary a lot of those ideas are. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I was reading people talking about the United States involvement with the country of Haiti. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's shocking. Like, it's just downright shocking the things that we've done and um, how we've exploited or manipulated and like at the same time there's probably a lot you could also point to that, that we've done there are good people too I don't, I don't want to sure. sound like one of those people who only believes that we're Machiavellian or whatever but it's like um, yeah that that we were talking earlier about a people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn and it's like um, that kind of subject matter I think to some people it maybe rubs them the wrong way or whatever but it's like it's not something from the past. It's something that's still going on, you yeah. know? So, uh, if the only place I, if I could change anything about my own life, it would be probably like back up in time and somehow read more history. Right. Um, but if the only place you can get it from is a video game, so be it, you know, like, um, <laughs> well, and it's, it's very po- I And mean, I think that it's something that's probably, you know, wrapped up in, you know, what I just said about how this really struck me the last time I played it is probably, I'm much more aware of the context of the dialogue now than I was when I was in college first playing it. Yeah, you know, like oh, I, that's I, interesting. You know, I play it. I'm like, oh, I can see right. how much real stuff this is about because I know more about right. the real stuff. Yeah, it's funny because everybody who likes the game takes something else from it. I mean, there, obviously, there was a lot of work on narrative. There was a lot of work on level design, game systems, uh, an undercurrent of politics and. And like I said, you know, it was a, a weird, cool mix of people that probably, uh, in most circumstances, wouldn't end up working together. Right. Um, but, um, oh, what was I going to say? Um, well, some, something yeah. I thought was really valuable about it, again, in retrospect. Oh, sorry, did, did you get it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I was just going to say, like, um, but sometimes that produces such interesting stuff. Like if you look at Blade Runner and how mm-hmm. long that's been uh, an interesting way to look at like, you know, class separation and what who gets to decide who, who's human or not. Right. And the new Blade Runner movie, I don't know how you feel about it, but I loved it. I mm-hmm. thought it was fantastic. Uh, it's not perfect, of course. But as much as Blade Runner is like my favorite film and I've watched it over and over in all the different versions, I don't think it had hit me ever like until someone a person of color a writer of color wrote about uh seeing it through the lens of uh police and uh who is a citizen versus who is like uh a sub-citizen or whatever right. you know and I, I read that recently around the the new film and it's just like this is great this is what i wake up for it's like <laughs> films and games and books that uh you can still be talking about you know, what is it, 20 or 30 years later? Yeah. Um, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that you, what came to mind for me was um, something that, you know, it's funny, again, how your perception of these things changes. This might come from 
me, you know, having actually been a designer, you know, become a designer since the first time I played it, or it could just be taste and perspective changing. But I remember, you know, when I first played the, the game, I think this is a very, um, yeah, an understandable urge for an end user to play the game. And there's you know, spoilers for Deus Ex uh, now <laughs> going on being 18 years old or whatever. Yeah. Um, but midway, or kind of the end of the first act or so, is when you find that the government organization you've been working for, UNATCO, is not on your side. And you bail out and you either save your brother or he dies and then you join the, the, the NSF, the terrorists that you've been um, fighting the, the whole time and you basically join the, the resistance. And I remember at the time being like, oh, it would have been cool if you could decide whether you want to keep helping UNATCO or join the resistance. And in retrospect, you know, now when I look at it, I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very good that the game actually had a point of view and said, no, yeah. those are the bad guys. That's and an interesting, you are now like... Yeah, that's an interesting you know, observation because we have, and not so much now, of course, but like after we shipped the game, we heard from so many people that said that exact same thing. Oh, I wish I could have just continued with the government and UNACO and sided with them and hunted down the freedom fighters or terrorists or whatever. Um, And it's like, you know, first of all... uh, Scope is Scope and production (laughs) and money and time. That game already should have had like 25% of it cut or whatever so that people could have gotten to the ending. Um, Some of the stuff that wasn't really on the subject or whatever could have gone away. but, But whatever... Um, but that said, it's like, uh, even if you could have afforded the scope somehow, even if like you could have handled the branching narrative that, to that degree, um, you know, is that really what we want to do is make a simulator where like you can be a fascist, you right. know, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, or, or where you want to paint the narrative as, yeah. well, maybe both sides have some good right. ideas. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. maybe you don't, maybe, maybe you want to have a perspective in the, right. I mean, with these kinds of issues, it's, I think actually really valuable to come down on, I, I think on a point of view. Totally, totally. And I think even it is possible to make a game about a fascist, right? Like, yeah. uh, and but even when a lot of people do by accident, it, <laughs> no. What I mean is more like uh, I was thinking papers, please. Sure. Like even when yeah. someone has done something like that, uh, the best examples, like which papers, please, is probably the best example. Definitely have an authorial viewpoint on right. the effect of these things on people's lives. And yeah. That is like uh, I've never met. Lucas Pope, I've been at a party one time when he was there, mm-hmm. and he was, he's like a striking-looking guy with a big mustache. And <laughs> right. uh, Is he British? Uh, no, he's American, he's American but he, he lives in Japan. He lives in Japan, yeah. wow, okay. So he seems like a really interesting guy, and I yeah. didn't get to talk to him really, because I'm antisocial and neurotic <laughs> or whatever. But, um, if you see him at GDC, say hi, he's a super nice guy, it's and, okay, yeah. and good to talk to him. But I, I wanted to just fanboy out and be like, how did you fucking do that? You yeah. know, like, that's amazing. You know, I, play, I played this game and I, I, I you, you have that meta level realization, not only as a player, but as a developer, as you're playing it, as things are shaping up and you're kind of going, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I agree with you that like, that would have been sad if we had said, hey, both sides have some sort of equal argument. The the side that's in favor of totalitarian oligarchy and surveillance state and giving diseases to the poor so that you can sell them the cure, you know, they might have ideas. Right. It's, it's just terrible. <laughs> well, and the, and, and the interesting, or, you know, 
Another interesting thing, I've thought about this, you know, from my own point of view on the games that I've worked on, especially at our own studio, but also when you're working in like a lead position or a director position on such a big game with so much stuff in it, it feels it feels so strange to have to be thinking about and understanding the narrative and thematic implications of what's happening in the story and with the characters that you're placing and also understand that if you place this trigger volume here and the player comes back through in this direction it's going to cause a bug so you better you know just like and and i'm sure that on a game like deus ex you 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 said you actually built a lot of the level space yeah that was like um uh yeah that was definitely one of the projects where i worked in the editor a lot yeah and i I ended up, I th- you know, we had initially like something like six level designers or whatever, uh, and three of those guys I still work with at Arcane. Yeah. Um, and to their credit, uh, a couple of them still work in the editor. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a lot of like building furniture out of geometry right. and setting <laughs> triggers and you know uh, all of that stuff. I, I and I, I, it's funny how that affects your worldview because like. I still talk about little ideas like at some point J.C. Denton is of course captured right. and is put in a, a cyberpunk prison cell uh, in a UNACO black site yeah. and <clears throat> there's this scene where the idea is he's in the cell, he wakes up uh, there's, a, there's a window but it's mirrored so he just right. sees himself and the idea behind it is you hear these cold footsteps coming down the hall and when she gets to the other side of the glass, Anna Navarre like reaches over and touches a button, and it causes the mirror to become transparent right. in that way that glass has been cool and cyberpunky since Blade Runner Ford. Right. Um, and then she has a conversation with you, and then she touches a button again and causes the the glass to go mirrored again. Right. And I still recall exactly how I did that, like the <laughs> you know just instantaneous with a move time of zero. One second. Okay. Wrong. Yeah, so I remember setting the move time for the sheet that had the reflective Unreal. It does mirrors really well, you know, at the right. time. And it's like uh, moving it out of the world, out of the world box mm-hmm. at an instantaneous uh, movement rate. And at the same time, moving another sheet back into place that uh, had just the regular transparent or translucent window uh, glass on it. Then moving them, swapping them back after one end of our... <laughs> You know, gave you shade and pushed the button to, right. to go back mirror, enjoy your cell or whatever. Um, Which is but, a great moment because then you see instantly, you just see a reflection again, just so like replaces her, which is really cool. Yeah, and it's like you know, it's within the thematic subject matter of cyberpunk and surveillance and one group of people controlling you and imprisoning, imprisoning you, etc. And it's also like using the tools, even simple rudimentary level design tools for that purpose or whatever, but. It, it's cool when you can look back on your career and you remember some little moment where you did this little thing with this little trigger or whatever. Yeah. I'm sure you have moments like that for Bioshock or Gone Home. Or right. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's so funny. So they didn't have a they didn't have a script action to swap materials on the <laughs> on the BSP, which I assume it was like a piece of BSP that you were moving. Uh, it was a, probably a mover, like a two uh, D right. sheet. You know, oh, they had two D okay. sheets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, like, yeah. Whenever you're working in engines, you always end up with basically hacks or workarounds like that. Like, 
definitely sometimes in a game you might say like, oh, cool, you did this thing and, you know, whatever. This object changed color or something. And under the hood, you're like, that's a totally separate object. They, we, we couldn't change the color, but we could hide one and unhide the other one and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, as a, as a level designer, you learn that what matters is what the player perceives, not how it's done unless it breaks the game, you know? Yeah, there's a moment, though, where you can't get away with that anymore, though. That's that's what's funny is that uh, we were just talking about uh, my friend Rich Wilson mm-hmm. earlier who worked on Dishonored 1 with us, and he worked on Prey while I was in France. He and Raphael Colantonio and Ricardo Bear and Susan Kath and all of the, the guys in Austin at the Arcane Austin studio, yeah. they worked on Prey, which I love. This is my favorite game of this year so far. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Rich was a level designer on Dishonored 1. Yeah. Uh, and I think, lead level, he ended up being lead level designer on Prey. Yeah, yeah, mistaken. totally. So, yeah. And so there was a moment where... Uh, I think we wanted to have the implication that Dowd's men were watching you, uh, watching Corvo from a distance and then teleporting away, or Dowd himself was. Yeah. Um, and so he set up this like silhouetted figure against the sort of bright night sky on a nearby building or water tower or something uh, that teleports away if you look too long at it. Like it probably right. has a look trigger on it where it's yeah. like if you look for two seconds, it vanishes with the. Assassins teleport the effect on it. Right. Uh, and players figured out, of course, because they have all these crazy powers like Ben Time and things like that, and right. they have telescopes and <laughs> upgrades to the telescope and, uh, you know, Corvo's mask and all that. Uh, they figured out that he used a, I think the memory was tied on that level, so he used like this like sandbag practice dummy that we had <laughs> from a later there's a later level that Dan Todd worked on that is an homage to Thief in the Flooded District uh, this 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 moment where you know one of the assassins is working his way through like a little training course with some sandbag dummies or whatever anyway Rich used well, and, one of those and, and basically the sorry the, yeah. the homage there is that if I remember the trainer is using like the tutorial yes. text from yeah. Thief and another guy is like going through the tutorial exactly. from Thief in yeah. the song which is very 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 and, good and Corvo but, can you know murder them both or whatever but in that sort of elegant way, he can also slip past both of them as they're training on stealth, which right. is even cooler. You know? <laughs> but whatever, uh, Rich used that sandbag dummy. Late, later, players figured it out, and so players asked things like, "Was that supposed to be the outsider?" Some people got it. Oh, that must have been one of Dowd's whalers or something. You right. know, people have asked, "Was it Delilah?" Like, you know, what, what's <laughs> going on? And then, of course, people are like, "How? Explain this!" You know, there's a <laughs> screenshot of the sandbag dummy, like you know, and it's like that kind of breaks the fiction, doesn't it? Right. You know? but, <laughs> But yeah, when you when when you re- I mean, you know, all of all of all of games are an illusion in the end, right? So if you if you really, as a player, are able to to go to get yourself behind the scenes, at oh, some man. point you're gonna be like, well, yeah, it's all fake. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, that's really that's so interesting. I can't remember her name, but there's a a game designer developer on Twitter who recently had a big. Thread where she right. uh, do you remember? It, it wasn't Alicia Lidecker. Mm. No, that's another. That's maybe a, a Montreal developer who did this. The most recent super kick-ass speech on systemic game design. But yeah. there's there's another woman. Maybe I, in my mind she's from Montreal too, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I forget who posted that, but I know what you're talking. She about. turned it into an article later, and it, she just asked developers to respond with little tricks. And of course, people were saying like. Oh, in System Shock, the last bullet in the the clip of a gun does 
triple damage or something because they wanted to facilitate high drama endings of the right. fights, you know. And, you know, what's that's not the interesting part. I mean, that is the interesting part academically right. and in terms of creating a more powerful experience for the player with those little dramatic moments, you know, where you just feel like, wow, that, I barely got away with that. But what was more interesting to me was how hostile some people were. Yeah. Uh, some players liked it and, and liked seeing behind the curtains, and others were like, my God, I feel like you've been cheating me all these years. Or right. whatever. And it's just like, what did you think we were doing? You know, like yeah. uh, bending time and space and opening a little portal into an alternate reality where all this stuff is real? No, these are right. all like, you know, uh, tricks using... Uh, you know, scenery and physics and right. animations and. Uh, well, I loved some of those those uh, those tricks and tweaks. Like I think that someone who worked on Bioshock mentioned that the first shot from an enemy always misses, so you get to hear it and not just instantly take damage, and then you mm-hmm. can react. You yeah, know? and like that great. kind of thing is really. I'm it's like, just really that's good smart. feedback. You yeah, know? like because otherwise. What game is that? Just I think the first Bioshock. Really? They said any okay. like pistol splicer or whatever. Wow. Their, their first shot yeah. always miss. That's, like, that's really great. cool. Like, that's a, like as a designer, I'm like that's something good just to think of. Why didn't I think of yeah. that? Yeah. Um, and and, and yeah, then, then again to to counter us, there there's there's something about like pure systemic ironclad. Oh yeah. Like uh, what one of my favorite games from a certain period of time where I was playing a lot of mobile games was it Osmosis? Yeah. Yeah, we're like... Or I think uh, there's Osmos. Osmos, yeah. yeah. I, I actually met the guy who made it when I went to... The first time I went to NYU to yeah. talk to Frank Lance. Andy, and uh, Andy Nealon? Andy Nealon, yeah. yeah. And I just went crazy over the like <laughs> elegance of that. Like yeah. In order to propel your little ship across the, the space, you have to... Uh, vent some of your mass, right. which shrinks you, which makes you vulnerable to larger enemies, you know? So it's yeah. like you go after an enemy, but by the time you reach that enemy, you're smaller unless you conserve your mass right. just right or whatever. Well, and no mass is destroyed, so when you are ejecting mass to propel yourself, you can also be... Suck it back up. Well, or you can be propelling it into another oh, yeah, thing, and it, it makes larger. them bigger, yeah, and yeah. now it's a bigger, you know... But, problem for you and that's yeah. so elegant like that's the kind of thing I never ever would have thought of but I love it and I appreciate it so much um Raphael and Ricardo and those guys that worked on Prey that was one of their driving thoughts was that um, to make a more sealed self-contained real-time environment for Prey uh where less things were faked or less things were abstracted is a better way to put it because sure. like between dishonored missions, you're like, how many days passed? Was that two hours that Corvo took a nap? Right. Or was it like a week? Or you know, uh, so there's some fuzziness there. And in Prey, they really wanted to remove a lot of that yeah. and just say, you're on this station. Here's the economy. Here are the enemies. Uh, now, of course, they you know they have their own systems and their own quote unquote hacks here and there. I'm sure, but but it's like they were there was certainly if you had to graph those games, Prey is closer in terms of trying to be self-contained in real time and right. purely systemic, you know. Right. I mean, you know, when you when you look at it, I mean, that's the thing. When you said abstract, that's what really strikes me is like any game design is I mean, not everyone, but many game designs are effectively an abstraction of a real-world experience, right? So if you're playing a racing game, even if it's the most 
accurate you know simulation possible it's still an abstraction of actually driving a car uh you know you aren't going to have every aspect of the environment you know affecting it like it would uh in in the real world and when you're playing a shooter game you're not really playing an abstraction of walking around and shooting guns at things yeah you're basically playing uh, an extrapolation of Doom? Effectively, you know, you're like, here's how the gun moves in relation to the camera. When you click, yeah. it makes a line go to an enemy and do damage to them and, and so forth. And it and does feel pl- more camera-like than gun-like, honestly. Right. And, I, don't, I, mean, I, don't rem- I don't know how much of the story is um, apocryphal. Uh, that's the right word, right? Sure. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, mythological, the, right? Yeah. Mytholo- mythologized over time. Right, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, there was, I was always told that, like, Manhole covers in racing games are like humongous. They're like you know <laughs> ten feet across right. or something. Because as you're speeding along in the car, they don't look right otherwise. They they look like they're tennis balls or something. Yeah. You know? So um, yeah. But anyway, so I don't know. It's it's all on that spectrum of like, what do you abstract out and what don't yeah. you? And what's your version of that? Yeah. And is is the unrealistically large manhole cover on the road, if you're driving 180 miles an hour, is that a quote lie or is that <laughs> more true because it looks right to the right. player? I, I yeah. remember uh, I visited Looking Glass after um, System Shock, Floppy and CD. Uh, those two projects together were 10 months of, of, of me getting to work in support of that team from Origin and I, I yeah. learned so much. I mean, like the last month or so, Doug Church was in our cubicle along with uh, James, the guy that did the VR headsets at the time. This was like, <laughs> remember, 1994. 1994 supported VR two different VR headsets, yeah. But, uh, Wait, the original System Shock actually yeah. ran on VR headsets? Yeah, there were... Wow. There was a... The <laughs> no, v- I never knew that. There was the VFX1 okay. and the Cybermax... The Forte and the Cybermax or something like that. But yes. one was of like... Of course they're called that. It was the 90s. Yeah. One was like a bicycle helmet, it looked like, yeah. with cables in the back. And the other one was looked just like a black brick with a band. And it literally had like a faucet-looking knob on the back of the band that you tightened against your head right. to keep the brick attached to your face. and. Uh, Which is still how the adjustment on like the mm-hmm. Oculus works. It's still one of the cranks on the back. Yeah. But there was a there was a great moment too, where like you know we were told because we were peons in QA making seven dollars an hour, we were told that if we screwed up one of these prototypes, uh, it was going to come out of our skin because they were like ten k <laughs> each right, or whatever, yeah. some incredible price. And I remember working one day, and I had like one of the guys on my team, like John, was like holding the Cyberman, this twisted sort of mouse on a post that would cause your hand by the end of the day to be all crinkled up you know you're, you know <laughs> yeah. like a claw and he was wearing the cybermax and i smelled something i was like i turned around and there was a wisp of smoke coming out of the the brick and i was like john it's on fire and he threw it across the cubicle and it, it landed with this like glass breaking like sickening sound or whatever but um anyway it was just like a diode burning out or something i don't know i don't know but um uh, what was I talking about though? Oh, uh, I mean, amazing shit. That's what you were talking no. about. <laughs> no, I went to Looking Glass. I went to Boston to interview with those guys, and I yeah. almost uh, I got a job offer and almost accepted it, but instead stayed behind to work with Warren on a game called Technosaur that got canceled. But um, anyway, long story short, I remember sitting of all people, I barely know him. Uh, I've only met him like once or twice, I think, and so so I can't I can't claim him as a friend or whatever, but I was interviewing with 
a variety of people during that day. And I talked to Seamus Blackley. Mm. And they were working on Flight Unlimited at the time. Yeah. And I remember, like, we're sitting in his office and we're flying one of the aerobatic, you know, gliders or whatever. Yeah. And the, you know, the there was a big lens flare on the on the cockpit bubble glass, and I and I said something about the realism, and and he was just like, no, it's not realistic because that only happens for a camera. It's just what you've seen. You've never been in a plane like this. You've only seen it through the lens of a camera. Yeah. And therefore that seems real to you. And therefore it convinces you that the plane is real even though it's fake. <laughs> and it's just like it's yeah. like a simula uh simulation 101 at some level, but it's right. like simulation and perception 101, but it was like such a strong point and I was yeah. like, yeah, I I get it. I I agree that you're exactly right, yeah. you know. Well, because um, it's not realistic; it's impressionistic. Yeah, right. It makes it, it makes you it's verisimilitude. You know. Yeah, like, you believe yeah. the thing you're seeing, and yeah. and I, I, you know when you were saying that, the thing it, it reminds me of is how when you see the moon in the sky and it's a big, beautiful, like full yeah. moon, you're like, wow. And then you take out your cell phone camera, and it's the shittiest little dot. Yeah. And it's because the way it's perceived by you is not your brain is is. Is adjusting your perception yeah. of these things even when you're looking at them. That's uh, so fascinating. I, like my whole life, that's been like one of those like tiny frustrations in the <laughs> background. It's like all I'd really like to do is take a picture of this moon right now that I could share with my friends because it looks incredible. It's ugly, yellow, scary looking, or it's kind of blood red, or yeah. you know whatever. It's huge. I remember there was an event like what was it two years ago or something uh, where it was like a super rare. Uh, lunar event. I think it was a supermoon. Yeah, that, sure. that's what it was called, right? The <laughs> supermoon. And I was in the Alps um, with some friends who have a chalet there because <laughs> wow. I was living in France, and yeah. so that sounds fancy. Not too far off. But it yeah. was honestly like jump on a bus because uh, I didn't have a car for four years. Ride out to this small town. Uh, they picked me up. They drove me out to their little. They had bought a weekend place, right? They're a little older, and so we sat around and in French style, we drank a variety of different. Uh, wines and uh, had huge dinner and then we sat outside and watched the supermoon and I took a photo of the supermoon with my cell phone camera and then accidentally <laughs> deleted it the next day and I remember tweeting about that well I deleted my supermoon photo once in a lifetime kind of thing but it was kind of shitty anyway right. so I'm sorry but whatever and it's like it's still true it's like you know like you want to be able to share that image of the moon but right. you can't yeah. yeah that's the difference right it's like it's in the, your mind. The, the, the reality would be the shitty little tiny yeah. supermoon. You're trying to give the player yeah. the feeling of actually being at this chalet right. and seeing it. Yeah. yeah. The story's better than the photo was. <laughs> or the, the feeling of being there looking at it is yeah better than the representation of it can be. So much of that is perceptional. And, and it's like, it's mind-blowing. Like, the degree to which we walk around with all these illusions. Um, like, you know... I was talking to some friend recently, and I'm not the world's biggest David Foster Wallace fan, but mm-hmm. like we were talking about his quote about, I think the real purpose of books or fiction is to allow people to countenance death, because we all walk around having a pleasant day, <laughs> like you you have some loved one, you know, some people have kids, some people have elderly parents, you know, you have a, a lover, uh, you walk around and you're having a pleasant day because your coffee was good or you're playing, throwing the tennis ball for your dog or whatever. And yeah. like 
the dog is going to die. You know, yeah. your lover is going to die. You're going to die. Your kid's going to die. Your grandparents are going to die. Yeah. And it's like you just have to like pleasantly forget that for a while in order to function. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm so aware of that like perception reality thing because like uh, as I've aged, I ha- you know, I started to wear glasses and all that and it annoys the shit out of me so I don't <laughs> wear glasses. Yeah. And, and finally I went in and I was like, to this French doctor, I was like, hey, I want to get my eyes fixed. I want to get your, the equi- French equivalent of LASIK. Right. But I really don't want to have to put on glasses to use a phone. It, is the technology there? I was ready to walk away from the appointment. I was like, because right. I've been waiting for 20 years for this. I was mm-hmm. like, is the technology there yet where I can have a surgery that will both correct for distance and up close? Because right. at a certain point, if you get it corrected to see in the distance, you can't read your phone or read a book. And you have to... Sure. And that would suck, right? Face-to-face yeah. conversations where the person's blurry would be way mm-hmm. worse than not being able to see the movie screen at a distance or whatever. Right, yeah. uh, and the guy was like, well, <coughs> not really, but here's the thing we can do. We can do, and you have to imagine this with a French accent. <laughs> he was like, we can do one of your eyes. He was like, the other eye is pretty good at up close, but the other one is really wrecked at a distance. So we'll take the better one of the up close and we'll leave it alone and we'll fix the worst one of the distance. And he was like, let me test it on you because some people hate this. Yeah. And he put on some special glasses on me and I was like, badass. I can read my phone. I can read a book. I can read a magazine. I can see your face very clearly. And I can also read the sign across the street through yeah. the window down the road. Yeah. And he was like, let's do it. And so they fix one eye, which literally has half the cost. It's like instead of fixing both right. eyes, you <laughs> half off. And I have to uh, press go on the laser machine once. <laughs> yeah, it takes two seconds or whatever. But anyway, the whole point of this little ramble is you begin to realize, like, you think of your eyes as some sort of lens that you're looking at the world, and it's actually your brain is putting all this together rapidly. And the, I'm, I'm made aware of that constantly because uh, it's this composite image uh, because, like, I'll be, like, standing on a bus. So I was standing on a bus, and I was holding the pole and somebody was walking across the street in front of the bus as the bus was stopped. And I kind of like shifted my weight from one foot to the other. And the pole, I'm not even aware that it's out in front of me because I'm seeing around it basically. Yeah. But as it like shifted from whether it was mostly in front of one eye or mostly the other, the person walking across the street just blurred entirely as they're walking. Yeah. And then as I shifted my weight a little <laughs> bit, they come super into focus. And it's like, I'm constantly, because of the surgery, I'm constantly being made aware that like, what I'm actually seeing as like an object across the room is this composite of a good image and a bad image now that I'm, my brain is just interpolating. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but it's all this <laughs> illusionary stuff. Uh, uh, and it's just all around us constantly. I think more and more like the way people sell things to us, the way they convince us that we want something. Uh, if anything, a thread like that that this woman started, uh, if anything, it's a super healthy smart thing it's it's like the modern equivalent of teaching critical thinking uh critical reading rather right you know it's like uh everybody needs to be aware of all of these tricks and illusions and sales techniques and uh, i mean like the whole thing with the last election like using big data to figure out which sentences would rile up inflame the passions and angers of of one group or the other and then manipulating both of them with with A, B ads, that, you know, figuring out which ad is the most effective eventually and then just, like, pissing people off until they'll vote the way you want them to yeah. vote. Or, you know, you, basically you're stimulating the group that votes the way you want them to vote or whatever. Right. And it's like, man, we all really need to bone up on how not to be manipulated. <sighs> yeah. Well, 
So, 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 what was it? So to to get to get back to the the going from Ion Austin to then now Steve, you're now Steve's you're like cool story, bro. <laughs> no, 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 I, I love it, but I also I'm, I'm also like okay, I mean, no, no, no. like we're we're all I think that probably everything that we worked on you are kind of like swimming in that water of like how do we yeah. affect the player's perception of these things in a way that's valuable to them or expresses the game or whatever. But I think that you're much probably less aware of that and maybe almost behaving more naively early in your career. I feel like, you tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, you've gone from, you worked on Deus Ex and you worked on Deus Ex 2 and then you uh, worked at Midway for a short amount of time and ended up working at Arcane and, and developing Dishonored and, and Dishonored 2. So you've kind of gone through a lot of iterations of, of this kind of um, design space. And I would guess that in a lot of ways, on the first Deus Ex, you were just going by feel much more so than probably when you were working on Dishonored or Dishonored 2 and you were thinking more of like how the things you're doing are going to affect the the end result in a way that you can see now where probably in Deus Ex you're kind of like well this would be a good way for this to work and then you just find out how it hits people when it when it arrives I, I think you're right personally like in terms of like knowing things that I didn't know then but I also think <clears throat> you're right in the sense of the industry itself uh, institutional knowledge as of the trade yeah. Has, has gone up but maybe even more relevant what I see is that every time you pull a pool of people together a team there's somebody on your team who learned some trick on their last game about animation <laughs> and how to make this thing work how to make how to blend from this to this yeah. in a way that doesn't uh, bother the player right uh, or when exactly to apply slow-mo or when not to mm-hmm. or um you know which objects to desaturate and which ones to like punch up the color on so it draws the attention like everybody knows this staggering amount of stuff right and uh that's why it's so helpful to have a group of people look at things and discuss them and everybody give playtest feedback that's why a diverse team is better you know because like you end up with like oh yeah this isn't my type of game normally but on mobile games we do blah you know and it's like oh okay that's a really cool trick or i don't play the all the same games that everybody else does, but I played this one weird game, and yeah. I can make our game better through this thing I learned from yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably true. And then also, you know, uh, it's just cool to have different people know different things. Yeah, you know, so. yeah. So what was it? I mean, yeah. Very broadly, what do you remember from what was it like? Yeah, shipping Deus Ex. Like when that game came out, I feel like it. You know, what, what, what do you remember from? Well, you know how by accessing memory you change it or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like that's. Sure. Um, so every time I think about this I always remember I flash on this one very intimate moment Um, I mean I have lots of lots of obviously good and bad memories about the whole project Um, and I remember some people going to the store that day to pick up their copy because they were a little more traditional in terms of being developers that was the that was a ritual for them so part of the team yeah um I remember some people saying, well, it's time for me to go now. I worked on this project and I'm, I'm heading out. I, you know, I remember all those things. But, but specifically, I remember this very intimate moment where I walked into Warren's office. And to his credit, Warren served as therapist for <laughs> me uh, as much as, you know, uh, director of project also. And uh, I walked into his office and, as I did many times, just sat there talking to him, taking up so much of his time. <laughs> I, I look back on it now and it's like, you know, he gave me personally more time 
than I give any one person on our very much larger teams sure. now, you know. But <laughs> but uh, I, I remember walking in there and saying, like, how do you think this is going to do? How do you think people are... And I didn't mean sales-wise. I mean, like, in terms of how is this going to hit people? Yeah. Um, and we both were really nervous. We're both like, I'm not sure... All we can see is the bad parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how I would even rate it. Uh, rating wasn't such a big deal back then, but you know the general concept. Yeah, sure. I think we could have done better with even more time. It would have, it would have been better, um, you know. And I kind of had the idea that maybe we should have cut a little more. And Warren was like, maybe we should have cut a little less. And yeah. you know, we kind of went round and round about different pieces of it. But nonetheless, we were unified in both being worried about how it would be perceived. Yeah. Um, and it was only. You know, Doug was visiting the studio often back then. He'd come down and play test for a while. He actually worked on some tools with us and some AI stuff. And that was Doug Church who was coming down like from Looking Glass to kind of consult or just give you guys perspective. Right. And uh, I remember him coming in at some point. Like, I don't remember what was like a month later or two months or whenever it was, but... He said something like, you guys are going to have a great GDC this year. And I was like, "What what are you talking about? He was like, oh no, this is like... And somehow he was more tapped into the industry than I was at that time. Yeah. Like, you know, of course, he had way more experience. But, like, nowadays, if a month goes by, you know how your game is going to do. You can extrapolate, really. Like, yeah. it's you're, there's not going to be a miracle, right? It's like, f- from this little piece of sales data, you can extrapolate generally the whole thing. You might have a longer tail than expected, but, but usually not. Yeah. And he was already like, oh, no, this is going to be, like, you know, one of the more ex- successful games like this ever. I don't think he used the term immersive sim, but uh, right. but it was like shocking to us. I remember being shocked by that. Yeah. And I remember being called into Warren's office. Warren was giddy. He was like, we got nominated for a BAFTA. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck is a BAFTA? <laughs> right. You know, and it was, it, you know, so, so to me at least, it was uh, a complete surprise. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and then it just built from there because Deus Ex actually, I feel like, had legs in some weird way, like culturally within yeah. our little culture. So, um, well, I mean, going forward to today, like I'm sure that whoever, I guess, IDOS, uh, somebody is still making money off of new sales of Deus Ex on Steam. Like it's it's one of those games where it's like if you play games like this at all, you have to have played Deus Ex. You know, which is like that's yeah. I mean that's that's a fascinating. In, in the culture of games being fairly disposable, it's amazing when there can be one that's like, nope, you still, you still need to see Casablanca, you still need to yeah, play Deus right. Ex, you know? Yeah, uh, when things are not somehow so limited by the time period or the technologies or whatever. Right. By the way, it's so funny because, like, uh, my main relationship with Doug off and on over the years, who I haven't seen a lot lately, but, like, I get so much more value out of just talking to him about things than... Uh, because his mind is all over the place. He's super brilliant. Yeah. He's got a little bit of everything, you know, and um, and he's very imaginative and technical at the same time, which is, uh, you know, a rare talent. Yeah. Uh, but the very few times that I actually, like, worked with him, worked with him in the sense that, like, we were both working on the same piece of content or whatever. Yeah. And I, there's just this funny moment I remember where we had our AI. We, we I had another thought a minute ago about the thing you're talking about where, like, you're making something and you have a hope about how it's going to affect the player emotionally. Right. Like, you can't even get there if you're struggling with the technology. If you're trying to get the technology just to square one, you can't even get there, right? So, like, that's one of the reasons 
why starting with an existing tech base that's just already polished and finished and has shipped games, I think is such a strong thing, especially on the indie side, for letting people create an experience for players. Because then you just don't have to worry about so much of that stuff. Anyway, that said, we started with Unreal. And we only modified it where we had to under the guidance of Chris Norton. Like we needed an inventory system. We needed a conversation system, things like that. But wherever we possibly could, level design tools, the editor, all that stuff, we just like went with what they had. Yeah. Um, Now, one area we deviated was we changed some AI stuff, some pathfinding stuff. And I remember Doug looking at things and just thinking and saying something like, I have a suspicion and I was like, what do you mean? He was like, well, would you build me a test map like this? And I, and I don't even remember what it was. It was like some sort of wall that I put a patrol point on. And on another pillar, I put something else because he wanted to test something. And then he did something. And the character just like ran straight off the wall and fell to its death or whatever. <laughs> and he was like, aha, I knew it. You know, and so yeah. then he fixed some little AI things. He was like literally working with us on, on at the very end on, on little AI features. Yeah. But it was cool to make this test map that just validated something that he thought would be true after looking at right. the change that we had made to the to the pathfinding yeah. whatever it was at the time. And it was very scientific method, right? Very totally. Much like, Let's I test have a theory, it. Yeah. make me a test case. Yeah. But it was also just so fun working with some of those people that that's one of my favorite things about Rafael Colantonio uh, and Doug probably is that on a good day there's a lot of humor. There's just, let's remember to be light and let's yeah. remember to diffuse things with humor and let's remember to laugh at stuff yeah. and uh, how goofy everything can be. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that, that was like, whereas often that project was like super contentious where we're fighting about what tonally the game was or how much of a shooter, how much of an RPG it was or how standardized the level design should be. Yeah. I was a big advocate of that at the time. Well you, well, you mentioned um, Raph just now, Raph Colantonio. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so he was the, the founder of Arcane um, in France. Mm-hmm. and Like 17 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, and he was with the company until just very, very recently. Very, very recently. Um, so and I've I, been there 10 years now. It's like, I, in January, I think it's 10 years. Wow. And I'm just like, when I stop and think about them, I'm like, how'd that happen? You well, know? and that was exactly what I was going to ask, is like, I have a vague idea... That basically, you know, Arcane was was very much inspired by Looking Glass games, and when they made Arx Fatalis, it was very much kind of like this is Ultima Underworld inspired, or we're yeah. trying to make a new, you know, spiritual successor to that. And and I feel like my understanding is something along the lines of he reached out to you, or there was some serendipity where it made sense for you to to join that studio. So what 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 led to you, or what was the what was it like when you joined Arcane, and what brought you to Arcane? Um, I was working in Austin, and I was at Midway, where we were we had bought us they had bought a small developer, and they added a few of us to it. And the idea was that we were going to make um, two big games: a shooter and an open city game. And I was mostly excited about the the open city game, and and the open city game almost became like more of like a one city block game. Yeah. Like in retrospect, if if I could do anything in time, it would be like go back, kill the open city part of it, make it one city block, and it was all about it was like inspired by Heat, so it was all about like casing a bank and robbing it or whatever, and using okay. systems to do that. Yeah. But the CEO of the of Midway at the time, he thought that if if only we all switched to open world, 
uh, using this shared technology that doesn't exist yet, <laughs> then we would make buku bucks. Right. Um, be the GTA killer and so forth. Be the GTA killer and so forth, yeah. And it's like, boy, was that a huge undertaking. Um, and fraught with problems, you know, that you when you're waiting on a system done by another studio that because you're going to share it and it's not done yet it's right, not done right. a year later and you know it's just like what do you do sure. uh, but anyway uh, I was working there my friend Denise was the studio director there were very strong people there uh, that to this day I, I like and a few of them I still work with yeah um, Ricardo Bear was there you mm-hmm. know uh, for a while Monty Martinez was there Steve Powers was there you know so it's like a bunch of good people um and Raph had moved over from France, which was a shocking move, right? Even to his own team. He was like, guess what, guys? I'm the founder of the company and the president of Arcane, but I'm going to move to Austin, Texas. <laughs> and uh, so he set up this, the studio there that, so that he could video conference with them and travel and, and still run things. Yeah. And that it was autonomous otherwise, you know. Uh, and he moved in with a small indie developer here. He sat at like a desk, an extra desk they had. <laughs> and then after a while, he moved another guy over. Yeah. Uh, and it was like him and Anthony Husso, a level designer I still work with, who worked on Dishonored and Prey. Okay. Uh, he was he came out of the Thief mod community. Right. He was like uh, one of the like Golden Hammer. I've worked a couple of, or three times. I've worked with people who were like award winning Thief mod. <laughs> Awesome. Um, Dan Todd was one of them um, who worked on the Flooded District in Dishonored mm-hmm. 1 and, and, and also the Clockwork Mansion in Dishonored 2. Oh, yeah. Um, and Anthony... Very, very memorable. Very, totally. very yeah. intricate. There's a lot of scripting in that one. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Anthony is, is the other one. But uh, anyway, it was like Raph and Anthony and he was like, I need somebody who has this smattering of different skills. Like, you know, can help us with admin stuff and HR stuff and negotiating, like making an American company. Right. But also like probably we, we don't hire anybody who's just pure that, right? We want somebody who also has a bit of production skills and maybe gets the narrative side stuff or could do voice recording or whatever. And at the time I was dating this woman and I said, you know, my girlfriend has gone through animation classes and she's got a keen eye for story and she's she she used to work at a mortgage place, and she's she sold Jaguars for a while. She's got she did stand up or uh, improv comedy. She's got huh. such a weird blend of things. Yeah, you should consider hiring her because she's not she wouldn't be a standard office admin person. She'd bring all these other things, and 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 so we interviewed Leah and hired her. Uh, and so it was Anthony Raff and Leah working in the American Arcane office, huh. and then I got fired by Midway. Right. Um, for saying the wrong thing to the press after <laughs> being crunched to death on black side and yeah. uh, having the game shipped early and all that. Right. Uh, and at that point, it was moved to California, and I think I was talking to Jordan about coming out working on Bioshock 2, yeah. which would have, uh, you know, probably would have met you earlier. Yeah. Um, I did end up working with uh, Monty. He took over my level on the main yeah, campaign of, right. of Bioshock 2. So. And so, uh, uh, just before all that sort of started clicking the place, Raph said, what if you joined us here at Arcane? We'd make you a partner, give you a percentage of the company. We can, we really think we might be able to build from here and do something cool. Yeah. And so 
it it was like a surprise move because my friends were like, what, this little French company? I was like, yeah, their hearts are so pure. They want to do what we want to do. And Raph is so smart, and I've known him for a long time, and I really trust him. Yeah. And so I interviewed with them, and there's these brilliant guys there, Christophe Carrier, one of the the best level designer I've ever worked with, and and, and uh, the level design director at Arcane, and one of the founders of Arcane. Yeah. And Sebastian Mitton, the art director, and just all these brilliant guys. And... Um, so I signed on with them, but I was in the American office. So it was like literally this square room with a desk in each corner facing the corner with like Raf and Anthony and me and my now wife, Leah, mm-hmm. uh, all facing away from each other. You know, it was really funny. And then it just grew from there. Yeah. Like uh, at some point, Leah left to go work for the Texas government as the video game and animation liaison oh, okay. um, huh. because we we didn't want all our eggs in one basket. We didn't sure. we didn't want to be working. Uh, Arcane like had some lean moments. Let's just put it that sure, way. Yeah. Um, well, working together is, I think, its own challenge. Well, seeing for each us, other at work, seeing each other at home. We, we loved it. Oh, we rode cool. to work every morning and uh, took lunches together and. That's right. Uh, you know, I M'd each other across the room. You know, it was like it was really cool for us. But um, anyway, um, you know, the studio grew. Raph and yeah. I moved into an office together. We sat side by side and collaborated on yeah. on uh, Dishonored One, probably closer than I've ever collaborated with anybody. And yeah. it was like a marriage in a way. Yeah. Um, well, that's something that I think about sometimes. Is like, I mean, that's that's. You being in that in that room with the four desks is like a. You know that with the help of a lot of other people and, and everything else, still you guys were you know the Flint and Tinder you mm-hmm. know that 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 got everything else going and there's something that being there from the first spark to like what it grows into is. Is really unique, and I feel like the, those are the kinds of moments in your career, you know, where you're just sort of like, yeah. you're there to start something. It was also crazy, though, because it was like really a couple of years, I think, before we got working on Dishonored. Like, we went through a crazy time of like pitching things to various people, right? <laughs> doing contract work for different publishers. We made a small iPhone game at some point. You know, we did, we did a lot of well, little I mean, things. Some of, the, some of the French guys, yeah, I also met them because they yeah. contracted on mm-hmm. in the late stages of Bioshock too. So some like, of our guys contracted on a Call of Duty game. Some yeah. contracted on Bioshock. Um, yeah. So, so and then yeah. we finally started talking to Zenimax or Bethesda and started working on other projects because uh, there were a couple of other games in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, we did. We did, you know, it looked like Eidos was going to sell Thief. And so we were we were doing a pitch for Thief 4. Eidos got acquired by Square and that deal went away. And, yeah. and so after all that, we, we thought, well, that was a nice dream. It's probably going to fall apart now. But, you know, to their credit, Bethesda was like, no, no, no. We want to work with you guys because we believe in what you do. It doesn't matter what we work on. What if we did this uh, ninja pitch we have called Dishonored? And we were like... Well, uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, it, it was born from there, you yeah, know, like yeah. working with Sebastian Maton and Victor Antonov and me and Raf and, right. and, you know, Ricardo came in and uh, it was a big group of people, Christophe Carrier again, and it just like exploded from there. It was a spark moment, you know, yeah. for, at that point. And it, and it felt like, like Dishonored was such a bigger hit than anyone expected for us and won so many awards and stuff. Although that year it was 
contentious because it was like The Walking Dead and Journey also won a bunch of awards. <laughs> but um, yeah. both great games. But like yeah. um, that was such a fulfilling moment because it was like so many years of trying to do this thing because we thought it would turn people on. And then finally having it work and having it turn people on <laughs> yeah. was so powerful to me and Raph. And, and our collaboration was so tight and so great and so difficult at the same time Sure, that if something great hadn't happened, it would have been so depressing. You yeah. know, it would have been such a setback. Uh, and then, of course, he went on to do Prey with that team in Austin, and I went on to do Dishonored 2 with the team right. in Lyon, and uh, I love both of those games. Uh, but and there'll never be a moment like that for me again probably you know that mm-hmm. moment where Raph and I were exactly at this point we were both really needed to work together and, and had a lot to teach each other and uh, you know and I, he lives he does, he's not a Rakane anymore but he lives down the road from me like literally three blocks we still work out at the same place together <laughs> we have dinner once in a while so yeah. and we text each other constantly you know yeah, so it's yeah. not like he's gone out of my life or whatever but that was a, that was a long collaboration that you guys mm-hmm. had yeah through a lot of different stages yeah, I mean you guys weren't collaborating years. as directly after the first Dishonored right but or or as directly before because uh, the first couple of years at Arcane it was like everybody was all over the place mm-hmm. but but really for that for that four years on Dishonored three and a half or four years it was uh, very tight yeah um and then he started thinking about other things about Prey and what would come next right. uh, other pitches um, after Dishonored, and so Ricardo Bear started collaborating with us more tightly on the DLC for Dishonored One, which is some of my favorite stuff. The, the yeah. more witches and knife of Dunwall. Right. Um, I mean, when you were when you were working on Dishonored One, did you think of it um, consciously as like there's this thing, there's this thing that immersive sims do, there's this thing that Deus Ex and Thief and System Shock do and you know what this is our chance to like yeah make people care and like I I assume that was part of it but then how did you apply that to how you thought about building the game and how you thought about what the design actually contained yeah I think we we definitely thought about that a lot like we thought a lot about the legacy of this type of game and some of us on the team were probably more dogmatic and some of us were a little more like yeah, that's where we're going to start, but we need to do our own thing too. Yeah. Um, and at some point, I remember I printed out like 20 screenshots from different games, including Bioshock and Far Cry 2 and System Shock. And I used the fake meme, uh, the meme fake motivational poster <laughs> generator website yeah. to like put a title and a, like a, a subcaption under that. And I printed out like 20 of those, and Raph liked them so much that he had them framed and hung over all of the office. And of course he added a few, other people added a few, but but they were like value statements about how we use horror and how we use, um, uh, you know, ammo economy and things like that, you know. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, it was very, it was very deliberate. Um, we literally had our values hanging on the wall. Right. <laughs> well, there was something that, uh, you know, as you alluded to, I just... Um, so, Rich Wilson was somebody I worked with at 2K Marin, and then he's done a lot of design and lead design stuff at, at Arcane, and I just um, caught up with him last night. And I, I was talking about how... So, he also does, like, some teaching, like, some design teaching um, to students at, at a local college, and... Um, he, you know, he's talking about using the design values and the the framework, the foundation of 
the kinds of games that you guys make as ways of thinking for his students. And it made me really think about how valuable it is that the kind of looking glass derived immersive sim derived design philosophy has a lot of very concrete pillars of sort of like this kind of, you know, this kind of thing is important. This is how, you know, a a useful way to think about how you relate to the player with this element of the game. And I think that there are other approaches to game design that maybe can feel looser in a way where it's like, it's got to be fast and fun and feel awesome, you know, but like when you're thinking about player agency (laughs) and, you know, like allowing players to be intentional and how you support that, it, it really gives you, I think, a lot of guideposts to... To, to work from yeah and it's funny because it's like a toolbox or lenses or whatever and it's easy like to sort of mock you know like player agency or whatever uh, immersion you know, right. how you create immersion emergent gameplay but yeah <laughs> but at the same time there are some very practical things in there that okay. have been absorbed by other games and done well or better by some other games like one, if I had to list like the twelve things that make up you know this type of game or whatever, you know one of them would be environmental storytelling. It would be the ability to walk around in the environment, and if you're oblivious, just walk past everything. But if you're not oblivious, if you're if you care or you're parsing the environment or you're trying to make sense of things, you can you can glean a story, and part of it's the story that's embedded there, and part of it's what you bring to it, right? Right. Um, I'm sure you're like you and Carla and your team are way on top of that because Gone Home did that over and over and it both did it like in terms of the embedded part like what the family who lives here what is going on with them right now wow they seem to be in a mess this is a weird moment in their lives and yet it's also like oh because I went through this in the 90s and in your experience in the 90s was probably very pure as a 90s kid in some way mine was like as a Gen X guy who like kind of felt like I missed a bunch of things and was never quite able to get that experience purely. It was already too late for me or something. Yeah. But I, So I had my own reaction to moving through that space. Yeah. Like it was the 90s and I was coming back from college and my, you know, uh, people were listening to, you know, Bratmobile and things like that. And it's like a completely different contextual emotional reaction yeah. to, to that material than probably you might have had, you know, right. if you were a player... Well, I mean, um, we've 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 certainly heard from players that weren't alive yeah. at that time, and and so they're like a time capsule. They're looking at it totally through the media that yeah. survived from that time right. and so forth. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, like just to take one of those values, like environmental storytelling, and to look at other games that are maybe not even immersive sims that have done that as well, if not better. Uh, Portal or Left 4 Dead, like the, yeah. the environmental storytelling in Left 4, Left 4 Dead is so good at so many different levels. It's not just like the survivor graffiti on the wall or whatever. It's baked into who the characters are specifically. Right. And th- then the missions that you go on and how they leverage the sort of filmic tropes from zombie fiction. Right. Uh, and then even the way the systems collaborate together. Like I'll never forget the first time we completed the hospital. We all got to the got to the chopper. I can't <laughs> believe I just said that. Get to the <laughs> chopper. And, um, and as we're flying off like one person got pulled back down and didn't make it or whatever and there's this horrible moment where you're like this is part of a zombie fiction right like as when it's done well and i know we did it to death but when it's done well it's like nihilistic and and terrible and it's it's 
an abstraction of all the ho most horrible things that can happen. A family being separated, society breaking down, you know, cannibalism, etc. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, this horrible moment where the chopper's leaving, and you know the chopper's not going back. There's no option for that. Right, and yeah. somebody's down on the ground being torn apart, screaming at you, and anger, you know, or in fear. And then the credits roll, and it lists the survivors, and it, it lists... The person that didn't make it, I don't even remember how it's worded, but it right. lists them as like not having made it. Right. And it's so powerful because it's like, it's game systems and fiction and tropes all just like rolling together in a way that, you know, if you were an alien who'd never seen an, a zombie movie or whatever, like this might be very weird to you, but like the the piece itself, every element of it is harmonizing and communicating what it is. Yeah. And it's just so strong. It's so impressive and... Uh, inspiring yeah so so how would you because I, I know that we we have to wrap up before too too terribly long but like you went from dishonored you know which was sort of you trying to to bring back these values and this way of of putting a player into a role and bring it to an audience that that would connect to it and you you did that with with the first game and so how did you think about carrying that forward into a direct sequel into dishonor like what what was dishonored to to you as far as what was important about going forward from from the first game's success i think in order to, to answer that you have to back up a step and that that is to say that dishonored was a bit of an argument right because even getting like 20 people in a room who love this type of game they're going to argue, right? Right. <laughs> uh, there's going to be the guy who says, no, 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 it's better to abstract the mission. So you finish your mission, you go to sleep, you fade to black. When it fades back up, you can reset things. It can be raining, it can be night, it could have been a week. You can shuffle characters in and out of the pub. Right. Uh, you can imply some time passed. And it's, it's better, it's more realistic. You can't topple an entire government in like, you know... Yeah, six days or six something. Six days yeah. with very little sleep or whatever. Um... um but also, it, it, there's something that feels more realistic about it in that, like, with the way these people talk to me, they know me, like, I've lived around them for a while, and, and I get to see little moments of their lives or whatever. So there's definitely that argument, but then there's also the argument that it's the way Prey went, right? No, it's a self-contained environment that runs at real time. Every minute that passes is a minute that passes, and, um, and one of those models is the first one is more like Deus Ex. It's mission-based. You get in a helicopter, you start flying, it fades to black. Yeah. Fades up in Hong Kong or whatever right. uh, three days later. Um, another one is more like Underworld, which is like you wake up in the Stygian Abyss in this prison and you have to survive by pulling river plants and eating them and, <laughs> and killing rats. And uh, you have to light a torch if you want some light, and you just you move through minute after minute. And I think both of those are very strong. I love both of those. Yeah. Um, I kind of would rather. I wish there were more of the latter. I wish there were more of the like self-contained, minute by minute, unbroken, real time, unbroken. Yeah, because yeah. we don't have enough of those, in my opinion. But, uh, but whatever the way we argued back and forth on the different, the ascendancy of the different values of immersive sims on Dishonored, we did end up with some combination, right? Where yeah. This part's important, that part's important. I mean, we had one friend on the team argued vehemently against any slow-mo because he felt like using slow-mo was like taking control away from the player. Hmm. Uh, we were like, yeah, but it really increases the drama of that stab motion or right. whatever, you know. Um, it gives the player other things. Totally. You, you, it gives you, you have more reaction time. You have more so. reaction time. You, it, it ups the drama of a, of a specific moment. 
Uh, you can do things with sound. Right. Um, and then, of course, we systematize it, too, with bend time, you know, right. like... But anyway, long story short, we baked a set of those arguments into place, and that was dishonored. And then the public sees it as if that was the plan from day one. <laughs> right. It's like, no, yeah. no, no. This is like, in a hundred different categories, this is one guy winning 76% of the argument and somebody else <laughs> winning 30% of their argument, and that's, that's the formula that is now dishonored. Yeah. And so when we went to make Dishonored 2... There were many things that we, challenges that we had to overcome and a new technology and really ambitious ideas about missions that were themed gameplay wise, like, you know, the time travel mission or the clockwork mansion. Um, uh, And there were huge narrative things to carry forward, like Emily all these years later and Delilah, you know, uh, all these years later. Um, The expansion of our, of our, what's the word? Um, I can't think of the word right now. Um, our, our cosmology, okay, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, your, your canon. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's the word for the the way magic works in your world or whatever. But any, okay, anyway, sure. Um, uh, all of that. But the thing we didn't have to solve was how does a mission work? How do patrols work? Like um, you can deepen them or expand them. You can give the player new verbs. Yeah. But. Um, uh, so much of that formula of what is a Dishonored game was known at that point. And it was a really rare opportunity for me because, like, guys, we're going to innovate. We're going to do cool stuff. Emily's going to be a cool character. These missions are going to be super deep. It's not all me. It's all the other leads. You know, every, everybody's going to come together. We're going to make this big symphony. It's going to be a cool game. Yeah. Um, but the thing we're not going to change is the fundamental structure of what a Dishonored game is. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like much, but when given the same opportunity many years before, I worked with some of the same people on Dishonored 1, and I worked with those same people, some of them, on Dishonored 2. Not everybody carried over, but, but many of them did. And we did just enough to change the way players perceive Dishonored 2 from Dishonored 1 uh, that was shocking to people or that felt like a heresy or whatever. And <laughs> and I feel like to this day, if Invisible War had not been part of the... Just for the, just for listeners' clarity, I believe in that last section you were actually referring to Deus Ex 1 and Deus Ex 2. Yeah, what did I say? You were saying Dishonored 1 and Dishonored 2. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. It, no, it's, it's we, fine. we can back the tape up and do this whole thing over again. <laughs> no, no, I think everyone it's, understands. It's so. a perception reality thing. We can just pretend <laughs> like I said that right. Right, right. No, but, so no, but, but what from, I meant was, from Deus Ex 1 yeah. to 2, there was a lot of stuff that people with the first game we held sacred. Yes, exactly. And then 2 was different enough. Right, that like people, the number like, of, This isn't what. I'm used to this isn't what I want Deus right. Ex to be right? how big a mission is how long a mission is how much conversation ratio there is to action um, the fundamentals of the RPG system uh, we deviated in some of those areas and you know subsequently I've talked to people who like I knew this guy and, and I still encounter people like this who he had never really played a high end game like when he was a kid he played Zelda or whatever yeah. but then he got an Xbox and he and Invisible War was like his first big game. Yeah. And it blew his mind. He yeah. like had literally the poster on his cubicle wall at work, you know, and he still would talk about it. He was like, I didn't know games could be this deep or this cool or whatever. Yeah. And it was so refreshing to get the feedback from somebody who had not played the first <laughs> <Right>. Deus Ex. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's a long roundabout way of saying by the time we rolled around to Dishonored 1 and 2, I, I understood better that this is a 
dialogue with the audience. And there are ways you want to challenge the audience and you want to push back on them for sure. But then there are other ways that you want to make sure they get what they signed up for. You know, what they right. paid, they paid at the gate and you want to make sure right. they're getting what they thought they were getting. You know? Well, especially so, when it's a very direct sequel like that. Oh, like, totally. Same title yeah. with a number after it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's still, as creative director, you can never make all your decisions correctly. Stuff gets in the way. But like, I'm still shocked and I learned a lesson, but I'm still shocked by how much people, some people were outraged that we changed the voice actor uh, of The Outsider. Mm-hmm. And yet other people love the new guy who did such a good job. Both, right. both did a good job. Yeah. Um, but, but, but it's like part of somebody's fundamental reality about the game. Yeah. And you, it, to them it feels like you tampered with it. And right. I had good reasons for doing that, but maybe they don't see those. Um, well, as far as walking a third path goes, I didn't even know it was a different voice. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I mean, speaking of that, you are involved, I mean, heavily with the story of the game and the characters of the game, and, and you do some of the, the writing of the, the game? I don't know if I will going forward, but I have a lot in the past. I, I generally think a lot about game systems, about level design, and about narrative. And then if I'm on a team with super strong level designers, then I don't have to think about that I can pull back and just kind of like comment and play test yeah uh, and I, I mean in a weird way it almost sounds Buddhist or whatever but the ideal team would be one where you don't have to do anything because uh, the people around you are better at what they do than you are yeah. you know nobody wants to be in that situation you still want to be active and involved and all but that you can trust everyone to, yeah. to get everything done like then all you have to have is a conversation or two at the beginning and everything happens. That's never happened to me, by the way, but like... I don't know if that's a real thing, but... (laughs) But that's some sort of abstract ideal. And there are examples left and right, you know, where like um, by the time the team in Lyon did the death of the outsider, I was in France for the first half of that and helped set it all into motion. Hey, it's going to be about Billy finding her old mentor, Dowd. And then going after the outsider to, to end his life one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, and here's some... I had some pitches for powers. Uh, we did our my favorite vision mode we've ever done in Dis- Dishonored. Mm. In, in any game, actually. In, um, in Death of the Outsider. Billy's uh, foresight power. But honestly, that second half, I was moving to Austin. And so, Dinga Bacaba and uh, the level designers and game designers there. Like, the team is so strong. They did yeah. so much. And it turned out so well. Yeah, um, well, we worked with we worked with some contract writers that were just fans of Dishonored before that. You know, so that's awesome. So you you like more and more the thing you're working on is defined. It has its canon. And, right. uh, yeah. yeah. When you were writing and like working on story stuff for the for the first for the main games for the first two games, I don't know. Did did you get involved with like the voice recording process and stuff? Are you in the studio oh, yeah. with actors yeah. and stuff? Because that's awesome. Like I mean, just to to dork out for a little bit, you've had some really cool actors be involved with, with both of those games. And I feel like Bethesda always does that. They're like, we've got our Hollywood Rolodex. We'll get, you know, like, cool, really talented, noteworthy people in. I remember thinking that um, John Slattery's performance in the first Dishonored was really fantastic because I think there's some actors who are, like, screen actors or known actors that you just are kind of hearing them, you know? And you're yeah. like, oh, it's that guy, I guess. But... You know, I feel like John Slattery, who was, um, for people who don't know, who is um, Roger Sterling on Mad Men, among a lot of other roles, like, he really was, like, performing that 
character in a way that I don't feel like... I think that, that I played it, and I was like, wait, he's the guy playing that guy? That guy has a great voice. I would never have known it was him. He brought that character into yeah. his own space, which That's I thought was lock. really cool. Yeah, I mean, I have to comment on that for sure. I have a couple of comments on that, but I also want to just say, like, for Dishonored 1, you know... Raf and Ricardo and I looked at the narrative stuff a lot. The level designers, Christoph and them, uh, those guys factor into that as well. But we worked with Austin Grossman, who worked at Looking Glass. and oh, right. has a long history of cool stuff. And if you don't ever read anything by him, uh, other his, he's written a number of amazing books. But Soon I Will Be Invincible is just like one of my favorite things that anybody I ever have worked with has done. He he was one of the writers on Deus Ex, right? Yeah, and System and, Shock. And, yeah. and and yeah, he's done. He's written and novels. And, yeah, yeah, so quite talented. Yeah, <coughs> but uh, Terry Brosius also. Right. Um, and then on Dishonored Two, both of them again. Sashka Duval was our narrative designer, and we yeah. worked with uh, Anna McGill and Hazel Munfordon. Yeah. So a lot of different people wrote a lot of different parts of this. And right. By right. by death of the outsider, I wasn't writing dialogue specifically. I just no, framed I the whole story and then gave feedback or whatever. Um, but as far as that whole thing of having to know how to do like 20 different things, it's interesting to be involved with the story and the writing and actually to be there when the performers are like recording well, the lines. It's also debilitating stuff. because on Dishonored 1 Dishonored 2, I wrote or rewrote a lot of the lines, a huge, huge percentage of the lines. And, you know, when you're supposed to be creative director, meaning you're supposed to be looking at the animations and everything else, it's suddenly like you feel like you're not doing your job if you're spending too much time on dialogue or yeah. whatever. But that said, working with the actors is a lot of fun. And I, I don't know, maybe people don't have insight into how this works, but it's like, you know, you describe the character in pragmatic, like gender, age, you know, where they're from culturally are they high culture low culture like you know what's their history right uh and then you start thinking about who could pull that off who's sort of similar to that right or who would be a complete uh, cross casting kind of move and then the company comes back that you're working with like we worked with blind light for those games mm -hmm. and uh, those guys are really knowledgeable as well and they'd come back and they'd say well here's a list of people what do you think and half the time what ends up happening is that Either you've provided a name based on who you see the character as, or they've provided a name. Uh, and in celebrity cases, you just generally end up working with the people that you're excited about because they're on shows that you like. Right, yeah. That's, that's half the time with celebrities. <laughs> like, we got to work with Susan Sarandon for Dishonored One. And right. I'm like, I grew up as a Gen X guy. I'm a huge Rocky Horror Picture Show right. fan. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I, when I was like 12, I went to Houston and saw it at the Alabama theater, which was an old bookstore converted to, you know, we're like, like people line up in costume outside at midnight and oh, pass yeah. a wine bottle from the beginning of the line to the end <laughs> of the line. And then this floor show and all that stuff. Like, so like for me getting to work with Susan Sarandon, even though I didn't nerd out on that, you know, it's like, this was a huge thing. Getting her to play granny rags was amazing. Yeah. Um, I love Mad Men. John Slattery as Admiral Havelock. Um, I think he did that from a studio in New York. Yeah. We, we flew to L.A. and we were also in Austin. But he did that from, from a studio in New York because he was doing something there. Sure, yeah. Um, and we got to work with, uh, you know, so so all these guys that we got to work with, you know, Rosario Dawson is oh, really yeah. lurk. Um, just amazing. 
And again, you know, it's like you can point to projects and say, oh, I really love this project or that project. We, we worked with the guy who played Marlowe in The Wire <laughs> just because I love Marlowe as yeah. a character so much, right. you know. And so that often that kind of energy, it's not rational. It just drives those decisions and then it produces great work because you're excited about the character and you want to get it right and you're excited about the person you want to treat them right. Right, and, yeah. And it all comes together. But the other thing I have to say about this is that's the celebrities. And, of course, they get treated like, you know, they walk on a, a, a carpet of rose petals or whatever. And they're amazing because they bring a certain awareness to your project yeah. and, they, and they bring a certain level of energy to it. But I have to say, the scale actors, the voice actors, are sometimes so incredibly overlooked and so incredibly talented. Uh, we work with April Stewart, who is the voice of Jessamine Caldwin and the heart mm. in Dishonored, mm-hmm. which is a huge part. In Dishonored 1 and 2. Yeah. And she's Cartman's mom in South Park, <laughs> uh, I think, and, yeah. and, and the mayor. And she's so versatile. And so, like, to be able to do both of those things, like, at a Dishonored 2 event in London where we were having a dinner for some Dishonored fans, um, one person there said, I want to propose to my partner. And so we jumped on it, and we I wrote some lines for the heart, and we had April Stewart <laughs> record them, and we had the sound guy process them wow. so that this person at the party could hold the heart up near their partner, and it would read them and say, you know, there's a great <laughs> love here. I feel it. It will last into the future. You know, this kind of thing for That's the proposal. <laughs> and so we were totally... Part of it is not rational. It's not going to make money. It's not about that. It's just... It's like, do you love what you do, and how do you feel about the character? And once once you decide to do that, you sit down, and you're like, oh, I promised to write some heart lines. Well, I'm not going to fuck this up. Right. These have to be great. <laughs> not, they only, not only have to be true to my characters here, or our characters, but they have to be this person's proposal. They're going to remember forever. So anyway, the scale actors, like, when I think about the non-celebs who, like, came in, and, and the, there's a bunch of funny stories about those guys, but the guy who played Trevor Pendleton in the first... Dishonored mm. game was so brilliant, and it both captures the the witty voice of Austin Grossman when Austin's really on a roll telling jokes. Yeah, sounds yeah. a little bit like Trevor Pendleton somehow, <laughs> and so that guy just captured it. And he's just such a good job. And we had worked with one actor that I really wanted to work with, but he sort of got replaced by um, he played Piero, okay. and and he got replaced by a celebrity, right? Um, uh, what's his name? He played Worm Tongue in Lord right, of the Rings. Right. Um, Jesus, yeah. I'm also. I feel terrible. Yeah, I don't um, know. There's a lot of names to remember. Yeah, um, everyone who's listening, who's a fan of, they're uh, googling it right now, going, "Those idiots! I couldn't even remember." <laughs> well, he had really big. Eyebrow. Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif, yeah, right? Because yeah. he was the doctor on, yeah. um, on 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 Deadwood. Right? And he had he's fantastic. A, oh, he's that. fantastic. He's in been Deadwood. in a bunch of David Lynch films. He yeah, had a big Brad part Dourif. in Babylon Five. He's done a ton of stuff. He was in Clockwork. Uh, One flew over the. Cuckoo's Nest, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just like we work with these huge guys and they're so talented and they bring something to it. And, and Brad Dorf specifically had all these stories about playing Wing Commander and <laughs> crying at the end of it because it was so powerful to him. And the guy, the That's Admiral amazing. was like, good job, son. You know, he's, he, he was familiar with games. Yeah. But that said, the actor that first we had recorded the Piero part with before we were sure we were going to get to work with Brad Dorf. Yeah. I love so much, and I was like, someday I'm going to go find that guy and work with him again. And so when it was time to do Kieran Jindosh, oh, yeah. the grand inventor in Dishonored 2, who yeah. has one of the big signature missions, the Clockwork Mansion, and he's also, Sashka and I had the idea to use his voice recordings as sort of the like 
programmer callback uh, for the, the, the Clockwork Soldiers. The kind of like debug messages. The debug that they messages. Say, yeah. yeah. Which, so, by the way, I just as an aside, um, I thought that like that. Uh, sorry to, to make a tangent. Yeah. Uh, we'll 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 we'll, re- we'll get to, yeah. to where you're going to. But the um, the the pitch for not the vocal pitch, but like the idea for how the uh, Clockwork Soldiers phrase things in Dishonored Two is. Like as soon as I saw that, I think I saw it in some trailer, the gameplay trailer. It's a bit of an in joke, yeah. Well, but it also really struck me how it was something I'd never seen before. I thought it was really brilliant, and I thought that the machine referring to itself in third person, Very talking meta. about what it yeah. was doing because it's addressing its inventor. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. It's driven um, by an AI bark system, so it's very meta. When Sashka and I planned that out and we wrote those and it was like very exciting that it worked because initially we weren't going to have a voice for them and then we were like, what if we did this? Yeah. You know? and, um, well, and it helps with the player understanding their state and all that kind well, of stuff. Well, and the Clockwork Soldier specifically is the work of so many people. When you look at the game designers and the level designers who had to account for them and the artists who had to design the the, the thing itself and the animators my god and then the programmers involved in like making them function it's like and the pieces fall apart and you know it, <laughs> right. it's just like and the actors involved anyway long story short to get back to it yeah that that guy uh, John Guggenhuber yeah. also uh, we use Kieran Jindosh in our launch trailer mm-hmm. so when Emily goes into the Clockwork Mansion and he faces off with that guy it's this huge part I think the guy deserves an award you know right. for, for doing Jindosh in the game and in the trailer and the clockwork soldiers. Um, and it's just, he's also the voice of captain crunch of all things. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and this so, entire interview was worth it. I'll <laughs> level and so anyway, that's just an example of somebody who you would never really know in that he has not had that pivotal role. Like that, getting those roles is just lightning in a bottle. Yeah. He could have easily done that at some point or another. He's a really talented guy. But um, uh, it, the scale actors often are my favorite people. I mean, yeah. I, I worked with this one guy who did some parts for us, or part for us in Dishonored 1. And I looked at his, like, CV, his resume, and it was huge. He had done 40 years worth of acting or something. Yeah. Back to when he was a young pup. I mean, he was older than me, and I, you uh. know, I was looking at his, and he was, I was like, what have you done, you know? And I didn't mean it like that, but he was right. like, yeah, yeah, I know, what have I done? And it was like... <laughs> I was in Young Guns. There's seven, six millionaires in that movie and me. You know, it's like every other person, like Lou Diamond Phillips, Kiefer Sutherland, Emilio Estevez, Charlie Sheen, all of the people in that movie, you know, exploded somehow. Right. And he was like, and me. You know, this is so funny. But so acting is a weird world and it's yeah. fascinating to get to work with a group, the writers, first of all, but then also Blind Light and then the actors themselves. And then the audio people to process it and put it in. Yeah. Like people, I mean, maybe the audience knows this because they're developers or whatever, but it's like the number of times we have to go into a line and take out an unnatural pause or a breath or the audio guy has to inflect the pitch of the word down or up at the end because you phrase it like a question when it wasn't supposed to be a question. Yeah. Or whether the front half of this line was perfectly delivered, but in another take, the back half was perfectly right. delivered. So yeah. we Frankenstein those together. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like, again, layers and layers of work and illusion, you know, to yeah. bring you that experience. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, you've 
you've gone you've you've gone through Dishonored, Dishonored Two, Dishonored Two only came out. God damn! Actually, it was a year ago now. So I mean, we're we're recording this in in November um, in in twenty seventeen. This isn't gonna come out immediately. Um, but yeah, so it's been a year since Dishonored Two came out, which which actually just blew my mind. I'm like, really? <laughs> um, so it's yeah. got to be a whole other trip for you. Well, I mean, we've shipped the Death of the Outsider since right. then, and, yeah. and the company shipped Prey, and I moved back to Austin in February. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I mean. You know, obviously you're not going to be <laughs> announcing your next project here on Tone Control, but uh, yeah, how do you look at at what it means to go forward from really what you established and then explored further with Dishonored and what the studio does? Uh, it's really interesting because I uh, I'm back in Austin and that has been recharging, rejuvenating in a way. I'm working with some people that I've known for a very long time. Yeah. Like, are you from Austin? Are you... I'm from the Texas Gulf Coast. Okay, so but I've lived in California, Germany, France, <laughs> right, uh, Georgia, right. But um, you are a, you are a native Texan, just not a native. Yeah, Austin. I'm a native Texan, and I moved to Austin in '93. Austinite? What's the word for something? They say Austinite. Okay. Yeah. Not um, Austonian. Austonian. <laughs> no, that's Houston. People from Houston say Houstonians. Um, although Austin has a better claim probably to the stony part of the, <laughs> of, of that. So I'm shocked that it's not Austonians. Um, anyway, um, it's rejuvenating. Like, you know, I, I love France and I love the team there. Um, I'll have fond memories forever of working around Christophe and Sebastian Maton and Dinga and Sashka and all those people. Um, but, uh, man, it's great to be back in America and I'm... I'm not going to go on and on about this. I, I never talk about this really, but I'm in better shape now than I have been in like, I swear to God, since I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, Just getting getting more exercise, being serious about your physical. Uh... <laughs> all right, I'm going to talk about this. No, I mean... uh, nine months ago, I started CrossFit. Yeah. And I go four or five times a week. And it is... That's as, a lot. It's I as mean... life-changing as people say it is. I do it with RAF. Yeah. yeah. And so it's crazy how much that affects your... Your mood and your energy, and uh, when you go out and you do some something like lift Atlas stones in the rain, <laughs> the rest of your day—I mean, Google that—you know, like yeah, yeah. the rest of your day is like, oh, we have to decide whether this bot, like, uh, you know, has ammo in it when you destroy it or not. And there's a huge argument over that. Why? Okay, whatever. Let's just pick one. You know, yeah. like, let's try one. <laughs> It's nothing else is a big deal. You feel like you've done something badass and for you, for you. And I, I can't get over. It. Developers really should focus on like their social life away from work. Media besides video game and sci-fi movies, um, and then their phys- physicality. They should work on that as well. You know. So well, I think it's so easy to to get focused entirely on what's directly touching. Yeah. You know, the, totally. the thing you have to get done. Yeah. But when you find the time and energy and ability to to spend some of your time further away from from that i think that it really does influence what you're thinking about differently and that can be media or that can be physical you know activity yeah. or, or so many different things yeah but anyway it's all like uh working with this team again is it's a, it's a new chapter and i needed a new chapter after four years yeah. and it's uh you know, everybody's talking about where games go going forward. What, what, if you had to list the like 12 things that make up the kind of games we love, 
like what are the eight that you'd really hold on to if if you had to pivot you know like yeah. what uh you know what's the future hold for gamers and games and the style of games we make and uh, what could you do? What exciting things could you do if you added this element or that element? You know, yeah. so um, I don't know. It's it's just really exciting. I'm looking forward to the next few years for sure. And yeah. uh, well, it sounds like you're in a really good place personally. And then like yeah, th- there's a whole wide open kind of design space that you're stepping into. So it's going to be interesting no matter what. And I've been saying lately, like. Um, I also think it's really, like, people like you have proven that, like, the kind of, um, the things that you can do with the kinds of games we love uh, in the indie space, uh, like, either systemically or fictionally or in terms of structure, uh, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a proliferation of, of interesting indie games that are inspired by games like uh, Gone Home, um, uh, certainly we've, we've gone through like, uh, everybody's gone to rapture. We've gone through things like that, but, uh, uh, it feels like those games are getting meatier and meatier over time or more interesting. Like I alluded to what remains of Edith Finch earlier. Um, yeah. and so I'm excited about that too. Yeah. You know? I mean, something that's, uh, something that's interesting to me is, you know, I'm definitely incredibly grateful to now that it's more, more than four years after Gone Home came out to, to, I meet, you know, young developers who say like, I played Gone Home and it made me think, oh, well, maybe I could actually make this game I've been thinking of or I should, you know, try making this game about this weird thing because maybe games can do that. And, like, that's that's the most you can ask for is that someone played your game and then thought, well, maybe I could do it. And now you're playing their game and you're like, this game's great, you know? And something that is fascinating to me is that, you know, with Gone Home, I think that as much as the player experience and the and the, the mechanical relationship you have to the environment and, and what you're finding is important. There's also the thematic element where I think that as as much as... I guess what I'm trying to say is it's very interesting to me to realize that there are games that I'm starting to encounter that the people who made them tell me they're inspired by Gone Home, but they're nothing like Gone Home in how you play them. But yeah. they're like Gone Home in that they're able to, to speak to subject matter that's important to, to those people. And, like, that's... I went I know, to... exciting. Yeah, I went to um, an award show in London <clears throat> while I was living in France. And it was one of those two or three times where, you know, often we'd be nominated for one thing, we'd get that award or whatever. We'd be nominated for two, but we'd get one of them. That's just already super cool. That's yeah, great. Yeah, But this was one of those two or three times during the course of Dishonored where we were nominated for like four or five awards. This happened two or three times. And we won zero of them. Right. And so I went to this award show, and, and we were nominated for like some British journalism award show. I yeah. can't remember what it was. And like lost one after the other. Each one got called, and it was like, and the winner goes to, and it was somebody else. And, and it, you just sit there like, okay, surely we'll get the last one. They didn't invite <laughs> me here knowing that I got zero of these for our team to take back. And like, sure enough, zero. And so I went downstairs. The way the British drink is amazing. (laughs) They literally, as soon as the award was show was over, all the tables had bottles of wine on them that the waiters were walking around pouring red or white, whatever you wanted. The British stood up. They all grabbed all the bottles (laughs) off of the table, even though downstairs where we were going to do the dance part of the party, they had an open bar. (laughs) They carried those into the elevator downstairs. And anyway, I went down there and just hung out with. 
uh, the Irish journalist Ife, and uh, I can't remember her last name. Okay. Uh, Tom Francis was there, right. uh, and I had this a bunch of people that I got to talk to, you know. And I had this like fascinating first time I met Tom Francis, and this fascinating conversation about gunpoint with him, yeah. where he talked about being a journalist and wanting to be a game developer and setting out to learn the tools and really being inspired by Deus Ex and wanting to make Deus Ex, but then realizing that like first person perspective and the scope and all. And so he sort of ended up with gunpoint and this amazing feature of crashing through the glass that people love so much. And uh, it's kind of what you were alluding to. It's just like really fascinating to hear someone else's take that you impacted their life in some way. Um, I mean, like I got to call out, Daniel Hines at this point because like talk about a journalist we met during the Dishonored phase uh, it was Australian I guess yeah, yeah I do believe so and so he started working on his indie thing and I don't even remember what engine he's using maybe it's Unity maybe it's Game Maker I don't yeah. know but it's Wildfire that's that's his stealth game right it's like a medieval fantasy kind of stealth game and it's entirely built around emergent effects uh, I think he loves Far Cry 2 as much as I do so right. it's like fire effects and things like that uh, and if you just go follow him on Twitter and look at uh, the state of the game and the videos that can make so many crazy things can happen in Wildfire, it's going to be such a successful little indie game, I think. But it's super cool to meet people that are fueling their creative efforts based on something that you did earlier that turned them on, you know, yeah. and it's, uh, it's really a good thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending a bunch of your afternoon with me uh, while I'm here in Austin. I, I've... I've been wanting to do this since the first season of Tone Control. I'm really glad that, that we got to sit down this time. So, um, you know, thank you again for inspiring me and people I work with and so many people in the in the industry. And uh, I'll be really interested to see what you're doing in the future. Thank you. And thank you for going home and Tacoma <laughs> and all that. Well, we're doing our best. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks again, and, and I'll talk to you. Hug Carla for me. Will do. Bye.